Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the LIBF Banking and Finance Podcast. My name is John Somerville, and I'm Head of Financial Services here at the Institute. And I'd like to introduce you to this episode, which is part of our involvement in the Sustainable Finance Action Project with our Centre for Sustainable Finance. LIBF is bringing together key players in the finance sector to highlight organisations and activities that are making a real difference. Over the next few months, we'll be releasing films from different organisations to show how they're playing their part. And for this particular episode, I'd love to introduce you to Henry Boucher, who is Deputy Chief Investment Officer at Saracen and Partners, who have produced one of our very first videos in this particular subject. You'll be able to watch all of these films on our website or on our YouTube channel. And within the next few months, we'll have more films to come. All the links will be in the description. But first and foremost, a very warm welcome to what I've already described off camera as um, the David Attenborough of Fund Management, Henry Boucher. Henry, how are you today? <laughs> uh, fine, thank you, John. Uh, what an introduction. <laughs> yes, and a fine man to be compared to, I have to say, obviously. But uh, I hope, um, you know, knowing what I know about you already, Henry, and having watched you in action on, on a number of occasions uh, presenting, I've seen some very impassioned displays and, and presentations around this, these very sustainable subjects. And um, I've got to say, one of the questions I've always wanted to ask you is really what drove you um, to become the, the, you know, the, the, the person of the reputation you have today when it comes to sustainable finance? What, what, what brought you to this point? Well, um, my career for you know, three decades has been a, as a fund manager, but uh, I'm also at heart a deep conservationist, and I sort of first combined these two thoughts back in the um, mid-1990s, and I, I set up a, uh, what today we'd call a, a sustainable finance team. Um, in those days, we were looked at in a very strange way. People thought we were hippies or um, tree huggers or, or um, you know, some form of swampy. I was accused of being swampy at one point. Uh, people then said, you know, he stands in the corner and knits his own sandals. I mean, it was a really sort of strange attitude of, of rejection, if you like, of these concepts. And so it's been wonderful over the last few decades to see that gradually, gradually changing into the acceptance today that natural capital is an incredibly important component of financial capital. And so, you know, the world has, has changed an awful lot in, during my financial career. And I'm really pleased to see it. And I've been, you know, myself being in financial services for a good 30 years, I'm afraid to say. Um, I remember many, many moons ago when I was an advisor um, that we used to have a, a green fund in the portfolio, which was there to keep everybody happy. It was never used. Performance was never what it, you know, anybody wanted. So it was such a token gesture, really. Uh, and and it was made fun of. It has to be said, you know, back in the day in the 90s, it was, you know, something that people just thought, well, you know, it's there, but it doesn't perform. Why would anybody bother with these sorts of things? And of course, how the, how, the, how things have changed over the years. I mean, I have to say, I was just absolutely um, embarrassed to say that, you know, but that is, was the truth of the matter back in the 90s. It was really not a subject that people took seriously. Absolutely. Changed out of all recognition which I'm very pleased to say. So thank you very much for, for coming today. Anyway, we're really, really, really honoured to have you here. And, uh, and one of the, obviously, subjects to, to get us started, really, um, and you've quite nicely called, uh, given us the theme, really, for this particular podcast, 
and called it Cops and Robbers, uh, which I thought was quite... <laughs> for the pun, guys, I know Cops 26 was seems like, um, you know, ages ago now, but obviously as we stand today, um, you know, we are uh, only a few weeks away from it. Um, but Cops and Robbers, what, did, what, what was your thinking behind that theme, Henry? Well, I think that it's so important for people to see this as more than just uh, an event in Glasgow. Um, it, actually, the process of COPs, conferences of the parties, is a, a rolling programme. And we're going to see, after COP26 doing climate change in Glasgow, we're going to see COP27 in Egypt next year, which will come back and revisit climate change. But what probably a lot of people aren't aware of is another whole process of COPs, COP. 15 will take place in Kunming in China in April, late April, early May um, next year. And that's a completely different conference to look at biodiversity. And there are various different um, members of the Convention on Biodiversity. Um, and a lot of people uh, perhaps will be surprised by the agenda and the way that it's going to um, really start to address other issues than just climate change on the environmental front. So the, the cops are multiple, so that, that hence the, the, the plural for cops. And the robbers part really refers to this sort of problem of, of intergenerational equity. Because mm. it's quite clear that the underlying challenge is that we've got one small planet and we're using up its resources far too quickly. And for the next generation, this is an existential crisis. And I think you know, Greta Thunberg captured it when she addressed the United Nations um, a couple of years ago. She said, you've stolen my dreams and my childhood with your empty words. And I don't think we should underestimate this, this whole issue of, of not leaving the planet in a state that the next generation can live in. So hence, cops and robbers. No, I, th I think it's absolutely fantastic to hear. And, and you know, obviously coming away from uh, cops right at the end there was you know i think from a from a public investor point of view you know from the general public as well as um financial advisors and investors um we kind of saw a watering down really of the agreed treaty so it was agreed then it wasn't agreed then it went on for another two days and at the end of it um we heard the the well i mean effectively the the, the worst polluting uh uh uh, substance producing energy in the world which is coal um having a new lease of you know being let off really by the sounds of it you know and the chinese being able to to use it as they wished um what was your take on that did, did, did you find that a little bit disappointing or not a little bit disappointing well, i'm sure you found it a lot disappointing but what what's the what's the take on it from from your point of view yes i think that you know the final declaration obviously was watered down and and particularly in this this phrase they used of instead of phasing out coal power, they talked about phasing down coal power. Um, and that was uh, in many ways one of the disappointments, but there were some positives on, on coal as well. I mean, 40 countries did pledge to shift away from coal and that included some of the big users. Poland is a, a huge user of coal, Chile, mm -hmm. Vietnam. I mean, the, unfortunately the really big coal users didn't sign up and that's um, the United States, mm -hmm. India and China um, although, again, another positive I would take from the process was that um, the US and China agreed uh, to collaborate on climate change. Now, for any of these pledges, any of this process to really work, it takes those two, you know, the two biggest emitters in the world um, to be part of the deal. Mm. And so I think, you know, it would be wrong to have expected too much from a government 
sort of get together. And to get all 197 parties to agree on something was always going to be very, very close to impossible. Um, so I think it was a, um, a helpful thing to have the COP because I think an awful lot of things wouldn't have happened without it. So without it, it would have been a lot worse. Could it have been much better? Undoubtedly, because when um, the um, first IPCC report came out just ahead of the COP on the science of climate change, uh, the United Nations Secretary General described it as a code red for humanity, mm. if you remember. And he said, if we combine forces now, we can avert climate catastrophe. Well, sadly, um, COP26 didn't clearly avert climate catastrophe. Mm. Um, and we've all got to recognise that and no grouping of governments is going to do that. You, you can't expect to get all these governments in a room and suddenly get a, a solution. We're actually going to see, I think, a proper trickle down now, because this is uh, a recognition amongst everybody that governments can't do it on their own. It's going to have to be companies, it's going to have to be individuals who all take action collectively on climate change rather than just watching the politicians doing something. I mean, it stands to reason that it starts with the consumers in a lot of respects, but obviously the consumers need a choice. And it was, I found it interesting. We, we were talking before all this anyway, before we started recording about um, coming out of lockdowns and being able to travel again. And, and I don't think people have given a second thought to the polluting nature of the airplanes that they jump on just to get away because they almost feel entitled to that holiday they missed out on last year. But of course, that really you know that that small marginal gain of no pollution over the last 18 months has really been made up for i would say in the increase in international travel since um but it, it's having viable alternatives from business isn't it to, to to be able to um you know use cleaner smarter ways of travel uh and you know to not and, and as well as heating our homes and all the rest of it so you know as you say quite rightly that i think it if we were to wait for government it would be difficult but very similarly the electric car it's not quite the same i've got to wait around and have a charge for four hours that's not that's going to interrupt my immediate lifestyle therefore i don't want to change what i'm doing on a daily basis i'd like to be able to fuel my car and go um but surely there has to be some sacrifice from the consumer uh, you're absolutely right i mean the, what all economists agree on is that the solution has to be a market-based solution so if you don't want people to fly flying must be an enormous amount more expensive mm. and then people will find an alternative instead of going to you know the, to bali they will go to cornwall mm. um and i think that's the, the the big change that's got to happen effectively is, is some form of carbon pricing and, and that was another of the really big disappointments of COP26 and the lead up to it, which is that there are various politicians who just cannot impose, as they see it, some form of tax, so a carbon tax on everything, whether that's airfares or petrol or anything else. And it's particularly the case in the United States, which obviously has this febrile um, political atmosphere. But for instance, President Biden um, promised in his election campaign that there would be no new taxes on the middle class. So how could he possibly come away from Glasgow with a carbon tax? And I think, you know, we will end up with this solution. We are going to have to increase the price, um, but it will probably come about in a slightly more sort of unstructured or, or piecemeal way than perhaps it could have done if everybody agreed to put on a carbon tax. So those are the, the, the key sorts of mechanisms we're going to need to see over time to change consumer behaviour. There is some voluntary behaviour change going on, though, and I think that's the thing that 
you know, we don't perhaps give much credit to. But if you look at the amount of people now who are um, at least having the odd vegan meal, let alone going fully vegan, but the, the con consumption of dairy and beef is dropping. People are looking for alternatives. You know, they are taking it upon themselves to change their lifestyles. And in Sweden, they have this expression called fliegskam. I'm sure my Swedish pronunciation is appalling, but what it means is flight shame. And so, yeah, it, you don't go around bragging to your mates about, you know, how you took a flight to here, there or everywhere. You, you might admit that you did take the train, um, but you, you certainly wouldn't be proud of taking an aeroplane flight. No, and that, it's all about infrastructure, isn't it? Like you say, I mean, jumping on an electric train feels like the right thing to do in this current climate. You know, to jump on an aeroplane doesn't feel quite the same. Uh, but I, 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 for anybody out there that... Uh, vegan or vegetarian or just reducing that meat and dairy diet. You know, I, I was, uh, I, I've lived with the veg, my partner's vegetarian. I've lived with, the, with her for 22 years. And what I will say about that is um, uh, up until this year, I've followed mostly a vegetarian diet, but I'll still eat meat before the London marathon this year, which I ran um, for two weeks before I didn't eat meat at all and still managed to run the London Marathon so it's not the end of the world if you don't eat meat I will say that much and a lot of people say it seem to think that it's uh, it, it's it's so vitally important but yeah it's interesting really isn't it you know I, I think that um, uh, there's a lot to be said for for just those small incremental changes by the by the the mass population really makes an awful lot of difference but I was at a conference last week um and an interesting figure came to came out from that. This was the, the City UK, I will reference it, the City UK conference from last week in Bristol. And um, one of the comments that came up from the from a panel conversation was that uh, more than 75 percent. This is from a from a research document. More than 75 percent of EU investors said they plan to stop buying non ESG products in the next two years. And that includes investments as well as um, consumables. Um, so the plan is the next two years. That's not that doesn't feel like the, the the kicking it down the can kicking the can down the line too far. Two years seems like something quite a real prospect for business. They really do need to start taking sitting up and listening to this now. Surely, you're right. The, the the momentum is very strong, and it's not going to reverse or just fade away. And you never know when there might not be some really significant catalyst. Now you think back to. Bob Geldof, how many years ago it was, um, doing the Live Aid concert, which came out of a news item about a famine in Africa on News at 10. Um, there could be at any moment another catalyst. We've seen, you know, fires and floods and storms last year. Um, we're going to see many more of those um, with climate change. And there will be various moments that, that cause people to really change their attitudes. And, you know, it could be that a lot of financial advisors wake up one morning, their phone's ringing hot with their clients saying, how on earth are my investments actually made? What, what am I you know, profiting from? Mm. Sort of harm is being caused. And I think you know, one of those events will be COP15 next year when the whole world has the same sort of focused attention as it did in Glasgow, but this time on, on biodiversity loss. And that um, framework that they hope to come out of, of the Kunming conference is not only to protect nature and species for the next decade, um, but also they want to conserve at least 30% of the world's land and oceans as sort of national parks, if you like, and really push to eliminate plastic waste, cut pesticide use. So the focus in supermarkets, for instance, or in, you know, for the big fast moving consumer goods companies, you know, the big 
stock market listed ones, the Unilevers and the Nestle's and others of this world, um, will start to change. You know, companies and consumers could easily have one of those catalytic moments. And if you're a, a stock market investor in one of those companies, you've got to be aware of that risk and whether it's fully baked into the share prices. Mm. Um, because you know, you never quite know now with the momentum that's taking place when one of these things will start to have a, a really significant difference. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, 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 there's a, I, I was, I'll say a pop, there's a popular film that's available through financial advisor um, uh, uh, means, if you like, where consumers were asked what they know about their pensions and where they felt it was invested. And then they named companies that those people may not want to invest into either arms or oil, uh, et cetera, non-sustainable type companies. And once they realized that their money was being invested and they were into those areas, they were absolutely shocked and wouldn't want their money invested into them. So I, I, I guess really, first and foremost, there's an awful lot of the public that think that they're invested in the right areas because they've been told it. And this is where the greenwashing kind of thing comes in, really, doesn't it? You know, it, it, oh, this is perfectly sustainable, but actually underneath it all, there's something not quite invested in the right place. And secondly, consumer information through technology is not good enough at the moment but when it does get good then people are going to start waking up to a lot of this i suspect but what, what are your thoughts on all of that so we're in a process of transition but the really big philosophical change that has happened is that up until now pretty much anything goes you know mm. you could as long as it wasn't illegal you could make a profit um as far as most investors were concerned, they had no idea what the companies were they were investigating underneath the product, it didn't really matter. Mm. So how they made the money was not an issue, it was just how much money they made. Now we've seen this really fundamental shift to suddenly people wanting to understand how they're making the money. So the moral compass has sort of shifted right round. And that means that you know the financial investment community has been caught short because they don't have the information on which to say whether a company is causing harm or not. It's not in the accounts. The, the, the data is just simply not there. And it's not helpful, helped by the fact that it's not just investment managers who are greenwashing. Um, the, the companies themselves are you know, really excellent at greenwashing. And they're saying, oh, of course, we take account of climate change and they're signing up to every initiative. You know, the biggest representation in Glasgow was, was the corporate community by far. You know, all of these CEOs and others wanting to be seen to be green. If you actually then check their accounts and find out, you know, what they're doing to manage the risk of climate change or to change their um, their processes as a result of climate change, sadly, that information is completely missing. And until they're really forced to put this information into their accounts, um, all the incentives in the process will be wrong. Mm. And, you know, chief executives are paid and they're paid an enormous amount on the bottom line, just on the financial profit. And what we need to do is to change that so that they don't just think about, you know, what profit they're making, but how the profit was made, what the carbon emissions were. Now, as the data gradually becomes more available and they have to disclose this information, then suddenly the underlying retail investors will start to get what they've been hoping for, which is an understanding of how the profit was made, at what cost was the profit made. So there's a really big change coming and it does need a big shift in the data. And the people who are accountable for that are really the owners of the companies. Mm. Because if the owner says to the management team, right, you know, we want to see this in the accounts, please. 
And secondly, by the way, we're going to change your incentive structure so that you're not just rewarded on on generating a profit, but generating a profit with a very low carbon footprint. Mm. That will make a massive difference. And the owners of those companies are us, the shareholders. Now, all of us as retail investors. Um, and therefore, the, the fund managers have got to exercise their votes. And one of the things they haven't really been doing very well up until now is, is getting engaged and being good stewards of capital. And that's really a Saracen and Partners mantra. We've always taken stewardship incredibly seriously because we recognize the importance of you know, the ultimate accountability. But, but how you make a company change is really dependent on you know, getting involved in the accounts, really looking at the detail. And I think that's positive, possibly the most positive impact that investors can hope to have in the next few years is, is not necessarily just running away from every company you think looks nasty, but, but any company you're invested in, get involved, really start to engage and understand what the nasties are, because every company has some nasties, mm-hmm. and start to get involved in changing them. That has a positive impact. And if you want, as an advisor, to find out who has got you know, effectively is greenwashing or not, um, go and ask a fund manager for their voting record. Ask how many times they voted against management remuneration or the reappointment of a director or the auditor who checked the accounts and found that, you know, they were perfectly all right, even though they, they failed to mention climate change. Now, these are all incredibly important issues and, and the fund management community are not voting against them as they should be. No, absolutely. And, and, and I mean, it, it's, it's good that you mentioned this as well, in, in that, um, you know, I know and I've worked with fund managers over the years and, and, and I know that, um, you know, the responsible fund managers, you won't just scrutinise accounts, you will meet with the directors and you'll meet with um, the companies that are there that, you know, obviously that you want to invest in, into and you want to understand them better. And I'm sure you've had some, some, some interesting meetings, certainly over the last few, few months and years. Um, but there are companies out there that we see regularly that will say we're going to be net zero by 2050. Probably the most disappointing comments I ever hear from companies that are doing that because they are just generally they're not just advocating or responsibility to somebody else, but it's actually two or three CEOs down the line before somebody's actually going to take responsibility for moving them towards that sort of net zero capability but there's got to be some good stories out there there's got to be some good stories about management in companies that are actually making that really huge effort to to bring themselves to um helping the environment earlier in the process rather than trying to manage it later what what what, what good experiences have you had in your meetings really recently henry so i, I think in a, a lot of industries there has been an advantage for the first mover mm. so if you think of almost any industry that makes things or is involved with the physical world as opposed to the service or the, the sort of dematerialized world. Um, the physical stuff, if, if you've got a manufacturing process, there's going to be an awful lot of carbon involved. And it's not just in the, the manufacture of the product or the end of life of the product when it goes into landfill or, or whatever. It's all of the, the transport and the manufacturing process and the materials you're using and how they were made, you know, the steel or, or whatever it happens to be. You know, all of those things are causing carbon. So to decarbonize an entire production process from the supply chain, the raw materials, all the way through to the end of the life of the product and its ultimate you know, recycling, if you're decarbonizing that to zero, hmm. wow, that's a massive change. Hmm. And so you've got to make a very big investment. If you are an early 
mover in your industry, then you can start to get the green credentials, if you like, and the benefits of having been someone that has begun to decarbonize. Um, if you're a late mover, what you may find is that your consumers are walking away from you because you're not green enough. Um, you're late to doing the investment and someone is already ahead of the game on you. And so you've now got an even bigger bill to somehow swallow just as your sales are beginning to decline. You can get yourself into a nasty, vicious cycle of being too late. Mm. And so I would say to any company, and one of the ones, the thing that we find is that the early movers, the ones who've really thought about this and started to address it, have got the space and the um, the competitive advantage to move if they move early. And various industries have, have already begin, begun to see, you know, quite significant movements and, and to explore new technologies. I mean, the transport industry is thinking about hydrogen now in a really serious way. Mm. Um, whereas before it was, you know, someone, as you say, someone else's problem, manana, manana. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so I, I, I find that, sorry, it is changing. And I, I find I find that, you know, as you say, quite Romagnana thing is just so really wearisome because, you know, they're, they're trying to put a positive message on something that's very, very negative. And actually you do wonder whether they'll ever get around to it. But actually the, the more people that move now will make those, will expose the companies that aren't moving quickly enough, the ones that are using too much resources, water, carbon and all the rest of it. So it's, it, it, yeah, really challenging times, but... I, I, I obviously I want you know we've got um a few minutes just to sort of talk a couple of other items really um we've talked about cop part of this we've sort of had a little dabble on the robbers part of this which is really using the resources of the uh, of um of our future generations effectively and when we use a, a horrendous rate um and Greta Thunberg comes into, I know I'm not pronouncing that, even the pronunciation department at the BBC got that wrong, didn't they? So it, I, I, it's Thunberg or something along those lines, isn't it? I'll never get her surname right. Um, but for the, next, the the stolen dreams and childhood and empty words comment that she had uh, and is well, well, it's well known and, and spoken of quite a lot. But this really is happening, isn't it? This is something, you know, th these aren't empty words. They, they, that we really are using up the resources of the, of, of the planet at an alarming rate. Yeah, I think that there's no question that our lives are unsustainable. You know, a lot of the things we do, just the way that we go to the supermarket and all our food is packed up in, you know, plastic packets that have all been, as we've now discovered, injected with carbon dioxide. Hmm. Um, you know, it, it, it really isn't um, a, a, that difficult to change our lifestyle. Else we just need the catalyst to do so. And, once that process starts, again, it's going to be, it happen, will happen over the next decade, a massive shift. And it's a massive shift away from this, this concept of, of just more and more stuff, you know, the very materialistic um, lifestyles we've had. You know, you can go to Primark and you buy as many T-shirts as you like for five quid. You know, sort of absurd mm. level of consumerism will change away from, you know, having lots of T-shirts to suddenly thinking about the life of that one T-shirt for 20 mm. years. And, you know, the, um, the economy will shift from being much less material to a dematerialized world. So one where we enjoy um, services and entertainment, and, you know, concerts online. Ariana Grande had a, um, a concert on um, uh, one of the gaming um, apps the other day where she attracted 78 million viewers to the wow. concert. And 
you know, the, the, the way that the metaverse is changing, the digital world um, that we can all enter in the gaming sphere, but, but increasingly will be in other spheres too, um, is causing a massive change. There's no accident. Facebook have just changed its name to Meta. Mm. Um, so, you know, we've got to really open our eyes to this new dematerialized world. It isn't all about doom and gloom and climate change and, you know, 2.7 degrees and all of those things. Yes, we must be incredibly focused on that, but we must also recognize what change means. And change means a, a new world, an exciting world, a really positive world in which, you know, millions and millions of people are now, you know, thinking, doing, acting differently. Mm. Um, and that's to be, you know, you've got two ways of dealing with things. You either get in the funk and just sort of hide under the table, or you can get really excited and involved with this changing lifestyle. Definitely. Well, first and foremost, I'm, I'm sad to say that I've got uh, T-shirts that are probably older than some of the people listening to this podcast, So, I, I, which is I, I, one of those things, I suppose. I'm, I'm just getting that old now, I really think so, <laughs> Henry. But um, there is hope, isn't there? That's the th- I think that, you know, we've talked about a bit of, doom and gloom here and I don't really want to focus on that because there are some real really great things that are happening in this world when we think about like you mentioned hydrogen already which I think is uh, is a source that uh, the problem with hydrogen is actually separating hydrogen from its other elements to make it a, a viable product that's a really complicated process isn't it but that's getting better than it has done in the past um and and people are now exploring that technology but there's a lot more hope out there. What 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 hope do you see in the way that people are changing that we haven't talked about already? Well, I think from uh, an investment point of view, if I look at our tomorrow's world strategy, um, a lot of it is around these sort of dematerialized concepts. It's a, it's a, you know enabling companies or consumers to change what they currently do to something more positive. And that can be, you know, at one end, it's things like software. At another, it's, it's, it's entertainment. It's, it's the enabling tools in a lot of cases. I mean, there's that old expression, isn't there? You know, if there's a gold rush, you don't want to be out there trying to dig a gold mine. You want to be quietly standing at the back of the path, selling people picks and shovels. Mm. And um, I think that, that, you know, if you just allow your mind to, to tick through to, to some of the ways in which you can enable this change, mm. um, there are some really positive and exciting um, new developments. And, you know, part of that will then start to, you know, be, be felt across um, the way that people want to do things. You know, you, you may find that actually, instead of resisting technology, you embrace technology because it becomes really helpful to you. Mm. You don't fear it's taking away your job. You actually in, sort of embrace it as a co-worker. Um, you know, there are many different ways that um, we, can, we can get involved with the future in a, in a positive way. And I think, you know, suddenly that idea of, of flying to Bali for a week is, is, is going to be out of the window and we'll be, we'll be entertained, we'll be amused, we'll be satisfied by um, a lifestyle that just doesn't involve quite so much carbon and plastic. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. And, and I, I've got to say as well, you know, here we are in the UK, um, you know, the, the birthplace of the Industrial Revolution, the, you know, obviously... The starting point of a lot of that carbon burning and and what have you you know but obviously we had an infrastructure that was that had to be changed to where we are today and uh, and it just sort of um within the uk it feels like we're doing all right um you know there, we've had several days where we've burned no coal at all and, and and various things going on but is the outlook in the uk as bright as we we believe it would be 
there are lots of different issues with every country, and that's why when you go back to the COP26 discussions, um, each country in producing its own proposals, how it was tackling things, was effectively looking at it from its own, um, you know, its demographics, its, its geography. Uh, every country is different. And the UK, for instance, is, is very deforested. Uh, we're very heavily populated per square mile um, compared with, with some other countries. And we do have, you know, we've had in the past very high carbon emissions. We've brought them down by um, changing from a, uh, getting away from coal-fired power stations, but we've still got a long way to go. If you look at our carbon footprint per person, um, but it's, it's not just a carbon footprint, it's our overall footprint. And we are, I'm afraid, right up there and exceeding the amount of, um, you know, stuff that we consume that is sustainable. Mm. And, you know, we are using probably about four or five hectares of land each to meet our needs every year. Mm. And what's available if you're going to fit 8 billion people on this planet is we should be down at about 1.4, 1.2 hectares per person. Hmm. So, you know, we really don't have um, a very good lifestyle when you measure it in that, that sense. Um, hmm. So I wouldn't congratulate the UK. As you say, we invented a lot of the problems. Yes. <laughs> we are hosting COP and things like that has helped to sort of begin to tackle them. But there's a long way to go. And it doesn't just rest with our government. It actually rests on our own shoulders and hmm. changing our lifestyles, which is coming. No, definitely. It's a, it's, a, it's a powerful message, Henry. And I think, um, uh, well, I've learned a lot just in, in, the, in the very short time we've had this afternoon. And thank you very, very much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure talking with you. Um, it's nice to know there is some hope out there. And obviously, we, you know, we, as much as there's a huge challenge, that last final figure, I must admit, is that, that kind of brings it home. And, you know, if you were to actually, I mean, saying that just for those people that don't understand what a hectare looks like, it's a big field, really, is really what we're talking about here, isn't it? So um, I, I guess that's probably the best. You know, if you think about that, as far as the resources per person is concerned, it's a lot of space, isn't it? It's, yeah, it's, it's unsustainable. Um, so, you know, that's the amount of crops that we need to grow not just to eat but to feed the cattle or the you know the, the lifestyles that we have it's the uh, amount of land needed to absorb you know trees needs to absorb the carbon um it's all of those factors put together and, and it takes an enormous space and you know, we we just can't carry on like that no absolutely not um henry it's been i say an absolute pleasure chatting this through with you this afternoon i've had a really enjoyable time actually so um thank you once again and uh, for, for all our listeners out there this is just a sort of kind of prelude podcast to the the films that we we're releasing through our youtube channel uh, over the coming weeks on sustainable finance and i'd encourage everybody to, to have a look at it anyway you'll see that the uh, links to that will be available through uh, the podcast that you'll see released shortly. Um, but it's uh, really uh, uh, only left to me to thank Henry. Henry, uh, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. It's been an absolute pleasure talking with you. Um, and uh, a very goodbye from me, John Somerville, at the London Institute of Banking and Finance. And hopefully we'll uh, be able to record another podcast for you again on, the, on these very subjects. And I hope to see you soon. Take care. <laughs>